Heavenly Father, thank you that you do rule the restless wave, that we can trust you to care for creation, and that you began it good, and we can still see echoes of that initial goodness. Please open our eyes to see creation as you have made it through your son, Jesus. In his name, amen. Amen. Are creatures good? We haven't got to fluffy bunnies yet, so it's easy to say that next week, isn't it, when we do day six and we think about all the animals. One of my friends who was visited by a family uh, seemed to really enjoy the little creatures that had appeared in the paddling pool that they'd left out overnight. And they took them home, actually. So they've gone to visit and seen these little creatures and took them home and thought, oh, maybe they'll turn into something really interesting. Maybe like a tadpole or a frog or something. It turned out they'd taken home some mosquito larvae in a bottle <laughs> and were a bit disappointed when it turned into that. We're not very comfortable with things being alive. As the fifth day dawns, the Father directs Jesus to command things into being that swarm. Do you see that? It's translated as team in some other versions of the Bible. So we think, yeah, okay, blue planet, finding Nemo, clownfish, blue tangs, great Yarmouth Sea Life Centre, even jellyfish look nice with UV light in the background and all that kind of thing, don't they? But we've got mosquitoes too. And we've already seen that waters are the place that doesn't really do life. The waters are the place that most resemble that chaos on the borders that Jesus contains and limits. Life coming out of the water is definitely where any evolution brain muscles start to take over. That's what's taught in schools up and down the country. That's what probably most of us think when we read Genesis. We're on home territory now, right? Maybe we haven't done a great job as a society of filling the wider universe with meaning, but we can draw an evolutionary tree brilliantly. So those brain muscles kick into gear, and they don't look good for creatures being good. (laughs) Because the evolutionary way of seeing things talks about lower and higher. The basic idea is moving from a single-celled thing that you definitely don't want inside you or as a pet. Usually it's in a Petri dish, nice and safe, although I don't think anyone's arguing that they were there in Genesis 1. Moving up from that to a slightly bigger blob with maybe two or three cells, then to things that look like fins over bajillions of years, then legs, then lungs, and then eventually humans at the end. Something implied by that way of thinking, but never really followed through, is that we kind of need to leave all that water-dwelling stuff behind. There's a character in one of C.S. Lewis's books who expresses the logical endpoint of that idea very strongly. He's an Italian doctor who works for the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. It's sort of C.S. Lewis's version of 1984 or Brave New World. And I'll read you a little bit of what he says about life, and particularly life in the water or on the land. And what do you call dirty dirt? 
Is it not precisely the organic? Minerals are clean dirt, but the real filth is what comes from organisms, sweat, spittles, excretions. Is not your whole idea of purity one huge example? The impure and the organic are interchangeable conceptions. What are you driving at, Professor? said Gould. After all, we are organisms ourselves. I grant it. That is the point. In us, organic life has produced mind. It has done its work. After that, we want no more of it. We do not want the world any longer furred over with organic life, like what you call the blue mould, all sprouting and budding and breeding and decaying. We must get rid of it. By little and little, of course. Slowly we learn how. Learn to make our brains live with less and less body. Learn to build our bodies directly with chemicals. No longer have to stuff them full of dead brutes and weeds. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? But what are all the Silicon Valley guys thinking other than that when they talk about us existing in the metaverse and talk about us supplementing our bodies with technology? No matter how much David Attenborough shows us beautiful shots of fish, it's hard to shake that idea of the waters swarming as something repulsive to be managed or stamped out. So our first big point as we look at day five of creation is simply this. Jesus likes life. Jesus likes life. Then God said, let the water swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, we see the dynamic of the father sketching something out to Jesus and him bringing it into reality. Two stages reflecting these two working together in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like every other day in creation week. And there's something deliberate about the way the first life outside of the Trinity is introduced. They work from the lowest possible place first. In that sense, the evolutionary tree is absolutely right. And move, and this is where it goes wrong, straight to the highest place possible, the sky, the heavens. So you have evening and morning, dark, then light, below, then above, under the earth, then over the earth. What we see here is a hazy blueprint for our much more advanced evolutionary theories that does down Genesis and massively overstates the cleverness of those creaking, unimaginative theories. Because the Bible gives us an answer to something that causes paleobiologists and all biologists, really, some serious problems. So this is Hubert P. Yockey writing on information theory and molecular biology in 1992. And things are not better in the last 30 years. Although at the beginning, the paradigm of the primeval soup was worth consideration. Now the entire effort in this paradigm is self-deception based on the ideology of its champions. That's what a leading scientist in this field says. So just some of the examples of the difficulty of going from not life to life, the opposite of that process that Philostrato was talking about. Proteins are essential for life. 
Sugars, like ribose in DNA, are essential for life. If they're in an uncontrolled environment together, they attack each other and disintegrate into nothing. You need all the machinery of a cell to keep these volatile chemicals from messing each other up. Or even if you find a way of dealing with that problem, Karl Popper, a famous philosopher of science, said in 1974, there is a vicious circle of protein, which is coded for by DNA, and the DNA to code it. The only way you can have protein made by DNA is if you use proteins that are coded for by DNA. They come together. You, you can't have one without the other. So he said this. Thus, we may be faced with the possibility that the origin of life, like the origin of physics, becomes an impenetrable barrier to science and a residue to all attempts to reduce biology to chemistry and physics. Well, here's another issue. You know that amoeba that's at the beginning of all the chains? There is no such thing as simple life. The more we look at all those simple, single-celled bacteria, the more complicated they become. Each biological system in the cell is like a city. The supposedly lower organisms have two characteristics that cause serious problems for our usual way of describing them. They are not simple, and they are still here. <laughs> We've not moved on from them. We spend a huge amount of energy trying to wipe out the life that Jesus joyfully spurs the water into producing. The waters still seem to us to do exactly what he started them off doing on that fifth day. Leave a body of water out for a long time. Eventually, things will begin to live in it. And they're usually things we don't particularly want there. It seems to us, obviously this isn't exactly what happens, but it seems to us from the eyes that we see everything with, that they just spring out of the water. So deep is this reality in the Bible that water is frequently equated with life. We use that language, don't we, when we talk about looking for water on Mars. Remember when Jesus says in John 7, anyone who comes to him and trusts him, streams of living water will flow from within him. Or he offers the Samaritan woman living water when he's at the well. And we're not talking about the kind of living water that's got things bouncing around in it, but it is a similar idea. These waters are the waters that would not be welcome on the dry land. But instead of them being barren, as well as chaotic and threatening to that stability of land, Jesus fills these waters with life, right down to the very darkest depths. Do you remember the blue planet with those vents that are incredibly hot? And people thought there's no way life can survive there. And then they discovered bacteria that live off the chemicals that are produced in those vents. There are even great sea creatures like plesiosaurs, giant squids, megalodons, whale sharks, humpbacks that are mentioned here. There's mystery in the life in the deep places. Most of them are not seen by anyone. They're like little sparks of light and life swimming through the darkness and the chaos. Even in the parts of his raw still to be perfected and radically good creation, 
even in these parts that seem most susceptible to chaos, Jesus gives life. That enigma that defies our explanation or study is swarming everywhere. Perhaps so far, that life isn't particularly attractive to us. The birds are an easier sell, aren't they? Especially this time of year, you know, everything's starting to come out. Anyone who hasn't watched that Hitchcock film, I hope you haven't seen it. I've only seen trailers, that was enough. Kind of likes birds. Uh, It's not great if you're trying to eat fish and chips on Lowestoft Beach. That's another problem. Uh, But basically, when we look up and see the birds, our eyes and our spirits are lifted to higher things. That gospel reading we had shows us that Jesus wants us to look at the birds flying across the heavens to actually discover things about the nature of the universe. That world that's too high above us, the world that we look at with longing and have just about managed to get a little bit up into. Well, the birds have no difficulty. If you've seen, uh, I think it's a kestrel, you're going to have to correct me now, but a kestrel hovering. We saw one above Bunky Common the other day. I saw a heron flying over Edgware Road yesterday when I was in London. And just immediately you think, wow, that's, that's what you think when you see birds going across the heavens. You don't think, oh, okay, that's the Bernoulli principle at work and, you know, they've got these... Maybe you do, I don't know. Maybe there's ornithologists here who know all about what the feathers are doing and all that kind of thing. But the first thing we think is, wow, isn't that magnificent? I'm going to read to you uh, a little excerpt from a medieval bestiary. So this is uh, hundreds of years old. And it gives us a little hint into that different way of seeing that Jesus introduces here with particularly the birds. So uh, this is a bird that, as far as I know, doesn't exist, but it was a name given, uh, and it's a way of seeing. I just uh, Don't focus on the scientific accuracies or whatever. It's a way of seeing. The halcyon is a seabird which brings up its young on the shore and lays its eggs in the sand around midwinter. It considers this to be the best time to bring up its young, when the sea is at its highest, and its waves crash onto the coasts more wildly, because the bird's special quality can shine out all the better. For however fiercely the waves rage, they will suddenly subside as soon as the eggs are laid, and the storm winds will die down to a gentle breeze. The sea and the wind are calmed when the halcyon hatches its eggs. They take seven days to hatch, after which the young come out, and the bird can leave the nest. It spends another seven days feeding them until they have grown. Do not marvel at such a brief period of feeding when the hatching takes so little time. This little bird has such magic that sailors can be certain that the calm weather will last a fortnight. These are called the halcyon days, and no trace of storm or tempest will darken them. So our instincts say, oh, well, that's scientifically rubbish. You know, it doesn't exist. It's not laying the eggs that stops the sea or anything like that. But... Learning to see meaning and beauty in these things that Jesus has created. Oh, we can learn from that. We don't just have to see physics and biology when we look at life. We can see the creative hand of the one who made them. If there are secret swarms in the darkest corners of the sea that proclaim Jesus' pleasure in life, the birds lift our hearts to the possibilities of life with their constant songs of worship, their dependence on the Father for their food, like we heard, the ravens being fed by God, their flight on the wind of the heavens to the greatest heights. 
the war that we're in with the birds when we have our seaside picnic, or the war against water life in our pond or pool. Is Jonah all right? Just fallen over? Okay. The war that we feel with all of that life is due to our disconnection from creation, not due to it being wrong. In this dawn of the world, the goodness of all life is all that we see. Jesus doesn't make an empty sea or a soundless sky. He fills both with life. Jesus likes life. And second, verse 22 to 23, Jesus blesses all life for thriving. Jesus blesses all life for thriving. So we have the staggering miracle that science still can't explain of life existing in the first place. We have an even more staggering verse that follows, verse 22. Then God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. No sooner have the seas and the skies been filled with life than Father, Son and Spirit blessed them to keep on making life. Jesus likes life so much that he shares the ability to produce more life. This is the beginning for a process that we take for granted. If it wasn't for this command of blessing, there wouldn't even be a theory of evolution. Life should not intrinsically be able to reproduce itself. The fact that it does is a miracle, constantly millions of times over repeating itself. This command is the only real reason that we have for extinction being a bad thing. We're surrounded by a rival idea about reproduction. People don't like the reproduction of life. They think it needs to be culled and limited and stopped. But in the scriptures, we have a reason for the emotions that all of us feel when we watch the blue planet or go scuba diving or swim with dolphins or go out to one of the beaches in North Norfolk and see the seals. The vision for reality given us by those who attribute all this life to blind process doesn't give us a reason to enjoy it or preserve it. In fact, it tends towards us driving it to extinction or setting up programs to cull and eradicate it. Now, against that meaningless way of seeing the world Jesus has created, let's remember he likes life. And he blesses life for thriving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please give us this way of seeing the world. So we discuss after church this morning, this book that has created such controversy among Christians. Please, would you help us to see what you desire us to see in this world you have created? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue in prayer now as Tim leads us.